Hello everyone, I am Dr. Anchal Makhija and welcome to our podcast, Transplant Journeys. So today, once again, we have Thomas Dodds with us and we will be discussing his transplant journey. So in our previous podcast, we discussed about how he made his lowest points his highest, how he had conquered his fear over faith and how he was battling his rare liver disease for 38 years. So today, once again, we have Thomas with us. Hello, Thomas, and welcome back. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. And thank you for having me back. Awesome. It's so good to see you. So Thomas, I'm so curious today, you know, to know that what took 38 years for you to get a transplant done because you know once i was told about my transplant kidney transplant um uh, i was shattered of course and i did not think of a transplant because i thought i will cure it but yes it took eight years for me to come to that confusion uh, journey was different but what took you that 38 years to come to that point or is or, or was there some scientific reason or some medical reason that you did not go for a transplant for 38 years yeah my journey to transplant so you might say from diagnosis to transplant um took that long because uh liver transplants are considered when a liver no longer functions adequately we call that liver failure. Um, yes, I was a liver patient for all of those years, but I was not in active liver failure. Uh, I had cirrhosis that was progressing <laughs> over those years. Um, and so I lived fairly symptom-free as a child. Um, most people who know me as a child, who knew me when I was a child, sorry, um, couldn't have told you that I looked like a liver patient. Um, and so now... Uh, you might say in modern times, kids who are born with alpha one and who present like I did at birth would be candidates for pediatric transplant right away uh, because they know that there's no, there's no, there's no living through it. There's no getting over it later on in life. Um, I didn't have that. I was diagnosed again in 1974. So um, transplants weren't the, the regular run of the mill thing they did. Kidney transplants, I think, yeah, age a little bit more in the medical timeline. Uh, they've been doing those a little bit longer. But back then, I wasn't sick enough, really. Right, right, right. I totally get your point that, you know, uh, the more it progresses and deteriorates your condition, then only you decide for a transplant. Okay, right. So, Thomas, uh, you know, before getting a transplant, we have two options. Either we go for a living donor in our family, immediate family, or we register for a, you know, transplant from hospitals. So uh, I'm sure you must have also registered for a transplant. Uh, can you please elaborate uh, a little for our American listeners, American viewers, to what is the entire process to register for the transplant? Sure. Um, transplant is not like a surgery that you can just call up the doctor and ask for one. Um, you, you do need to qualify for a transplant, especially a liver transplant. Um, 
So you have to have real signs, clinical signs, medical signs, you might say, that your liver is in failure or that you have primary liver cancer. I did not have primary liver cancer. You also have to be well enough, so you need to be medically certified that you will actually survive the transplant, um, the surgery and the recovery. My surgery was 14 and a half hours. It's a long surgery. You need to be able to live through it. And lastly, that you're not considered a risk of failure due to substance abuse. So there are people who do uh, arrive on the transplant list who have gotten there via substance abuse. I did not get there via substance abuse. And so there is additional requirements for them to make sure that they will be compliant. And I can tell you post-transplant, and we'll get to that at some, some other point, um, there, is, there is a bit of a, a requirement um, to, to maintain a healthy lifestyle after you've received the gift of life. So, once you qualify for transplant, you don't get your surgery the next day, you're entered on a wait list. It's a long wait list. And your spot on the wait list is determined by a statistical score called the MELD, or if you're a child, it's the PELD. And it really stands for the model of end-stage liver disease. Those are put together, those scores are put together from various medical tests that they run using blood work and other things. And so you can also get exception points, which kind of bonus points, which means somebody's determined that you're actually sicker than the numbers. That was my case. My meld out of a, you might say zero to 40, um, never rose past 11 or 13, somewhere in that range. Here in Pittsburgh, in this area, geographically, I needed a 15 to get listed. So a 13 with nothing is not gonna, not gonna cut it. So, with my onset of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, they gave me extra bonus points, you might say, got me to a 17, which got me listed. My actual meld never rose to a 15 between being told I needed a transplant or I would die within a year and to actually having the transplant about eight months later. So now you got this meld score, you're on the list. The list is also sorted by blood type, body size, and geography. So every geographical region does have a, you might say, a short list on its own. And you'll find that in North America, you'll find people listing themselves in multiple locations. And wow. there's an advantage to doing that. So now you're on the list, you're certified, and everything's, everything's a go. Well, now you wait line. So when I hit the list, being told that I had 12 months to live, I spent a few months getting certified and whatnot, so time is expiring. And when I hit the list, for me, the, the wait was about three and a half years. So I can do the math. 12 minus something is never going to be greater than three and a half years. So uh, how you skip the line? You bring your own liver to the party. And that's exactly what I did. Um, so really going from being told I had about 12 months to live and to actually receiving the gift of life was about eight months to the day. So that's the one way to do it is bring a living donor and those living donors must also be certified for their surgery. My sister, who was my donor, um, was in surgery for probably seven and a half hours or so um, and I can... 
I can go into great detail as to how that surgery is done. It's it's quite involved, but just the, the short of it is, is that they must be certified for surgery. They also need to be certified for psychological uh, reasons so that they know the commitment that they're making. They're putting their life on the line. Um, and it's a, it's a very important thing for them to understand the commitment that they're making, that it might all go bad from a really, really uh, critical standpoint. And then the matching criteria for matching livers to um, to recipients is the same. So you can't just bring a living donor and they just do the surgery. You still have to go through the whole matching criteria. Okay, so um, 14 hour long surgery. Oh my God. <laughs> nice. And, uh, you know, uh, in in US, in America, uh, in North America, so the people are registering themselves for donating organs. But in India, the list is so long, people have to really wait for years and years for the organ to receive. So I'm sure this will go higher here in India as well. So Thomas, since you have beautifully explained about the process of, uh, you know, registration, uh, after registration, you must have moved on to the pre-workup transplant process. It's, it's so scary. It makes people anxious. What will happen? What if my, you know, living donor gets rejected? So, you know, this, this process is literally, you know, keep you on your course. You're coming and going to hospital again daily. And, um, you know, how was your experience? Uh, what did you uh, feel? Were you stressed? Were you nervous about it? Or you were excited? Well, initially, when I was told I needed to transplant, um, you might say my pragmatic side went into to the, for, the forefront. I immediately asked what my options were. Right? You have 12, 12 months to live. Well, Okay, what do I do next? Uh, and that, for me, is a is a very uh, typical coping mechanism for myself. Uh, get the facts first, uh, and so I found it very, very helpful to keep myself in, you might say, that rational mindset instead of you know pursuing a, a panic-induced response. Uh, and that's typically me. Um, as I went from you might say that medical event of being told I needed yeah. a transplant yeah. through certification and then and then on to uh, transplant itself, I had to keep up with my daily care. I was dying. And and, and most people who are getting a transplant, they're dying. Um, in fact, most is kind of un understating it. They all are. To some degree or other, they're, they're dying. They're actively dying. Um, and transplant certification adds another level of stress to it. Um, I had additional doctor's visits, but they weren't around the corner. It's not my local doctor. I had to go to Cleveland, two and a half hours away by car. Um, when you're sick and you're dying, um, long car rides don't fine. Um, I had many, many calls with my health insurance and, and those complicated processes. And you have to pay attention to everything. Um, Fortunately for me, they assigned me a single concierge, which is a single person to handle my fate. So I was talking to one and one only person uh, at insurance. They explained everything to me. Um, 
and and coincidentally, they didn't want me transplanted in Pittsburgh, which is you might say the home of of transplants, especially for livers. Dr. Starzl was here, um, not at the time that I needed my transplant, but this is where it all happened historically. And so they wanted me transplanted either in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, or Philadelphia, and they're all hours away. Cleveland being the closest, doing a bit hours. So insurance makes their choices and they kind of impose them on you, and that can be an additional level of stress. <clears throat> As for how I felt, I really went inside, um, and and if I can put it that way, I kind of turtled into myself. Um, and music became my way of coping. I'm not somebody who who walks around with earbuds in all the time. Uh, I've often told people, you ride the bus and see somebody with headphones on or earbuds in, that is the universal sign to leave me alone, right? Don't strike up a conversation. I'm the guy who smiles at people. I'm not the guy sitting there, my face in my phone or headphones on. And I can tell you between April of 2012 and December of 2012, I had a lot of earphones in. Um, music became my way of, you might say, processing hope. So that's, you know, kind of how, how I felt. Um, the other, the other big thing for me was um, I had lots of people reach out to me and, and offer to be tested as my donor. I was floored. I was, I was humbled by the fact that many, many, we're talking hundreds, uh, reached out and, and wanted to be tested. And I just, I have felt that very hard. In fact, you probably hear it in my voice. Uh, ten and a half years later, it still gets me. What was different? Well, what was different for me um, was there was a, a voice that kept saying, test me first. Test me first. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, it turned out it was my adopted sister, Mark. Okay? My parents adopted four of us, and here's one of them insisting on being tested first. Well, I thought, well, you know what? If she can't pass the blood test, part of it, no harm, no foul, I got my sister poked in the arm. Well, um, she went all the way, uh, risked her life and did everything. And most people present five to seven candidates for a living donor transplant uh, on, the, on the liver scale. I only ever presented one. So if you want different, there's different. Uh, I only ever had one. How well did we match? Um, well, we matched on blood type right away. Uh, our blood type is one that's basically a 50-50 chance. So think about flipping a coin. That's that's the chance it was going to be wrong. Um, it wasn't. Uh, Size-wise, uh, a liver, you have to have a matching on, on the size. She's not a very uh, large person. I'm a lot bigger than she is. And as my surgeon put it, big man needs a big liver. Little lady only has a little liver. Um, turns out that uh, the way they divide the liver into a left and right lobe, my sister naturally had a massive right lobe, uh, just enough for me. Um, they take up to 70% of that donor's liver, as the case warrants, and she gave me 68%. So she basically gave me everything she had. And then lastly, how well did we match on tissue typing? And this is where it gets critical, especially for, for somebody who's uh, 
who's in, in the in the kidney side of things that you know that uh, those have to be very 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 good. Um, they're actually optional uh, for a liver transplant, but the tissue typing determines the compatibility between the tissues and how well will you uh, accept that tissue or how, to what degree will you reject it. Uh, my sister and I are extremely closely matched and my current health and, and the low immunosuppressive dose that I take are evidence of that now. Wow, this is amazing. How fortunate you are. How is she doing, by the way? Is she okay? My sister is okay? She's doing great. I'm actually going to be seeing her in about 10 days. Uh, we're getting great. together. Uh, but three months out of transplant, she was training for yet another half marathon. So she's a tough one. Amazing. And so uh, tell a little about your immunosuppressants. Are you still on them? Uh, because some people get off their steroids and immunosuppressants. How about it? Are you still on them? Yes, I still take um, Tacrolimus, which is uh, was formulated here in Pittsburgh by Dr. Starza. Um, I'm on a very, very low dose. My regular blood work does not show my Tacrolimus level. It's that low, um, which keeps my immune system fairly active. I don't end up with a lot of the infections that those who are on larger doses uh, tend to run into. I have had no uh, skin cancer issues. Um, I know sad uh, cases of, of skin cancer with, with, with transplant patients. Um, now, I, I take care of my su uh, skin from a sun perspective, but it means those immunosuppressants do um, allow for, for a lot of extra um, side effects that, that are not necessarily the most pleasant. Um, so my dose is very, very low. Um, I take one milligram uh, twice a day. So, and that's it. I take Great. other medications to keep the rest of the systems going right, but on immunosuppressants, very, very low. So it's been 10 years of your transplant and you are keeping well. Uh, I really want to know more about it. That, you know, what what things differently you are doing to keep keep up, to, you know, do work, to do activities like these and also to motivate people. What keeps you going? Well, what keeps me going is keeping busy. Um, Hang out with me long enough and you hear me say I'd rather be busy than bored. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was given, I think, 26 weeks of family medical leave uh, and I took seven weeks of it. So coming out of surgery, I was in, in hospital as an inpatient for seven days. I went back to work on week seven and that constituted me traveling to clients and I had the benefit of choosing my next client. I chose a client in Beechwood, Ohio, which is right around the corner from the Cleveland Clinic. I wasn't dumb. <laughs> I kind of strategically placed myself uh, where I could get the help if I needed it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of never looked back. Um, been running after it like that. And, and as, as you well know, being two months out or three months out, you, you get to a point where you just want to live. Uh, and, and you want to go and get it all, and, and, and you really have 
a, a sense of being alive that, that a lot of people who haven't been through what we've been through, um, they might not ever get that in, in their lifetime. And some of us end up with, you know, 10 plus years of, of, of being alive. I totally agree to that and uh, keeping up really good, motivating people and, you know, doing good causes is really what matters at the end of the day. And you're doing good. So thank you so much for inspiring all of us. Thomas, uh, coming to our last segment, uh, it's been 10 years of your transplant and you're doing so good. And uh, I'm curious to know more about your life. What happened post-transplant? Since you also found your birth families, and I'm so excited to know, you know, how it unfolded the event, entire event. You met your birth families. Uh, I guess viewers have to wait a little to know more about uh, Thomas, his interaction, his story of founding, finding uh, uh, his birth families. So uh, I guess they all have to wait till our next podcast Thomas what do you want to say in the end about it well I can tell you that this is where the story gets good yeah life, this is life the after transplant is a good life so this is the beginning of the story not the end right yeah, um, whenever I think that, uh, you know, because I'm writing a book, whenever I think, well, here's where it ends. No, there's always something more. We are so eager to know more about your birth families, of course, about your book as well. Your journey is so inspiring. I think it is worth writing for all of us. So once again, thank you so much for coming here and sharing your beautiful story. And uh, we will definitely see you in our next podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you.